Bienvenido al Destroyer. Vamos, homie. Estos son el pícaro y el enfoque. Acaban de llegar. Van y vienen para ver cómo están los perros las críticas. Son guanacos. de la segunda palabra. Era mi chucho. Para macha tu asal. le fue? Para la bombilla. Simón. Pero no encontramos ni verga. ¡Venga! ¡Es visto! ¡Vamos! ¡Venga! ¡Vamos! 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 ¡Vam
Venga, venga. Dame, puta, dame. Venga. Órale. Maggie, venga. ¿Iba a ser así nada más? ¿Qué quieres? Voy con vos. Ay, Dios, cómo la debo esta mano. No puedo cuidarte. ¿no? no, si no te lo estoy pidiendo, Mike. Pero el amor de Dios, Aira, date cuenta que yo ya estoy muerto. Que no agarras color. No te preocupes, Willy. Todo va a estar bien. regastro. No tienes ni idea de lo que te acabas de meter. All right, everybody. Before we get started, Burning Bright has a word from our friends at GoldCo. All right. You've seen the signs, felt the tremors in the financial landscape. And you know what? It's looking a lot like 2008 all over again. A time when countless Americans watched their retirement savings vanish into thin air. Reminds us of uh, the big short that Chris and I did last week. There's a solution that's as tough as we are. Precious metals, the guardians against inflation and dollar devaluation. The path to safety is simpler than you might think. GoldCo offers the white glove treatment 
guiding you step by step. You won't need hours, just a few minutes to start securing your future. This isn't a painful process. It's a shield of protection for your wealth. GoldCo has earned their reputation through honesty, professionalism, and thousands of five-star reviews. Their track record speaks for itself. Open an account with GoldCo and you could get up to $10,000 in free silver. Now that's an offer you don't want to miss. Time to diversify and protect your savings like the warriors you are. Visit BadlandsGold.com today to see how you could get started. That's BadlandsGold.com. That took forever to uh, wind down to the end there. I'm usually more verbose than that. But... <laughs> All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Badlands Story Hour. I'm Chris Paul. That's Burning Bright. And tonight we are discussing Kerry Joe Fukunaga's Sin Nombre. And uh, this was a pick of mine. Uh, I have not seen this movie in probably 10 years, maybe longer, probably longer. And uh, it's uh, a little different than I remember. I remember it being more brutal and also better. And I watched it. And that's why I like gave such a warning last week. And don't get me wrong. There are still um, absolutely brutal parts of it. Like you watch like a little kid get beat up, like really severely beat up. Um, one of those MS-13 members attempts uh, a couple rapes. There are a few killings here and there. Um, so it's certainly not a pleasant film to watch throughout. But uh, I didn't remember it doing so much to kind of exchange moral culpability throughout the film. And a lot of Hollywood films do this. Um, it is occasionally, it occasionally is interesting and warranted and often it's not. And I feel like this was one of those cases where it's not ultimately the takeaway of this movie for me at this point is that, um, a lot of the political narratives about not only gang violence, but gang violence in Central America and the entire illegal alien narrative the central narrative on all that stuff is supported by this film. It's not challenged by this film. And so for me, that's very disappointing. What did you think? Yeah, you know, what's funny is um, I actually thought that that was a big reason why you picked this. It was. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, re I just kind of remember it differently. No, I mean, I thought I thought that you picked this because um, because of their framing of it. Uh, but it, it just goes to show you that. You know, we, we've talked about a lot on this show, revisiting movies. I have never seen this. This is the first time I'd seen it, which is kind of interesting in and of itself that you'd seen it with your pre-Infowar eyes and post-Infowar eyes. Mm -hmm. I've only seen it with post-Infowar eyes, but um, I probably wouldn't have seen it as, as, uh, as you said, sort of transferring or exchanging culpability. Uh, but now it's like I'm going into these movies that that I know were sold based on how brave, stunning and brave the movies were. When I, when I now see these for the first time or revisit them, I'm looking for the hand of the director, uh, just assuming sometimes unfairly that the director is, uh, as you call them, maybe a, par a member of the party of false decorum yeah. and sort of, or at the very least, um, a true believer communist um there's that sort of that sort of a cliche that 
black conservatives often uh, ascribe to leftists and uh, Malcolm X actually did where he called, he said, um, he said, earnest liberals were the most dangerous animal in the world because they were like a fox. He just, he, he, made, he said they were akin to a fox where you couldn't trust them and their teeth would come out as soon as your back was turned. Um, and I think that Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who directed this, uh, you know, he's, not not a communist i would say uh, and no. you know when you watch this when you watch this with that kind of framework already in your head i was kind of looking for them to make excuses already uh and yeah i would say that the i mean i thought it was a good movie i i think it it was almost surprising to me that they didn't go into more of the origins of MS-13 that I know you want to talk about tonight. Yeah. I, I was expecting more of that, but it was really more of a, in the anime world, there's a genre called slice of life, which mm. is just like snapshots of, yeah. you know, day in the life. And I, I think this was kind of a slice of life where, where it concerns MS-13, but it definitely sort of transferred moral responsibility away from these poor South, South and Central Americans and, firmly onto the land of plenty that they're trying to flee to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's right there from the beginning too. You know, it shows you, yes, it's unfortunate that kids get into these gangs, but they do. And it happens when they're very young because their lands are totally impoverished. And so the, that supports the central narrative about why people would want to make the trip in the first place. They're afraid of gang violence. Gangs have taken over out of um, lack of other opportunities. And so people need to leave and they make this trip up to America. You know, the trip up that as, as it was displayed to us only intersected the cartel in any way because members of a cartel were chasing down another member of a cartel who was himself trying to immigrate to escape the cartel. And right. so again, not how it works. Um, so I wanted to go into uh, some of the actual history here of MS-13 because MS-13 was a major focus um, for enforcement during Trump's first term recognized as president and will be again in the future. There are a lot of intersections with MS-13 in politics particularly with the uh, Seth Rich murder. And uh, let's just get into a little bit of the history here. And, uh, you know, we don't often spend a lot of time reading on this particular show, but I think some of this is worth it. I'm going to try to... It's story um, hour. It's fitting. Gather around. It, yes, yeah. We're going to have a, a little story about the Mara Salvatrucha gang in uh, Los Angeles. I, th I think that that is the visibly correct size on there. So the Mara Salvatrucha gang originated in Los Angeles, set up in the 1980s by Salvadoran immigrants in the city's Pico Union, Westlake, and Rampart neighborhoods who immigrated to the United States after the Central American Civil Wars of the 1980s. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, Salvadoran asylum seekers were refused asylum in the U.S. and instead classified as undocumented migrants. Now, what is uh, not mentioned here, but is in but is mentioned in other articles you can find not only about uh, MS-13, but about um, 
this movie in particular is that the United States had a major um, influence in these Central American wars in the first place. Like yep. They helped initiate these wars. So again, you just helped as a light word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> elements of the, uh, the global regime go around to other parts of the world, destabilize countries through a number of different means. And then this is what gets left in their place. So in the beginning, MS-13 was a group of young delinquent heavy metal fans who lived in Los Angeles. However, the undocumented community in LA was subject to severe racial prejudices and persecution. Under these conditions, MS-13 began to mutate into a gang. Originally, the gang's main purpose was to protect Salvadoran immigrants from other, more established gangs of Los Angeles who were predominantly composed of Mexicans, Asians, and African-Americans. And if you think about the fact that all of these gangs were essentially uh, initiated by regime aspects, the destabilization of individual communities, and then the flooding of these communities with drugs and everything that comes along with it, then you can just see the regime has divided people by race and caused them to fight, which is yeah. insane. Yeah. I mean, uh, as, as just an aside here, and I know yeah. we might mention him more tonight, but when you talk about the CIA and these civil wars, um, our own Joe Lang at Badlands, I know a lot of people have checked his work out, but if anybody in the chat has not, everything on the Badlands substack is free. Joe Lang's been doing some long form articles for us. And if you go to badlands.substack.com, start with, uh, you know, search, search for um, assassins and dictators. His first article in this C CIA South America, Central America series he did for us is called uh, School of Assassins and Dictators. And even though I feel like it's it's become, you know, if you have any awareness of truth community stuff, even a borderline casual awareness of conspiracy theory, it's become almost pop culture to know that the CIA has run drugs, at least in Central America, right? That's that's basically like it's in Archer, it's in pop culture, It's there's movies with Tom Cruise that are built around it. There's a bunch of Netflix series that are really popular that kind of t touch on it. But that Joe Lang series, what's inter what, what really blew my mind about it is how direct it was, right? Like I think a lot of times we think about the CIA having their hands in the different cookie jars and, you know, maybe they kind of give already bad situations that push the Joker style push over into chaos. But the School of Americas was founded by the Bush administration through the CIA in order to create terrorist organizations that would destabilize Central American nations via regime change. And how do they do that? Through exactly what Chris is reading about there. Civil War is their, their um, operation of choice. But it's just amazing just how, you know, one, two, three, like A plus B equals C. The CIA comes, your president dies, and then cartels take over your nation and the rest yeah. follows. Yeah, and you have to understand that, you know, the drug trade, drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, all of those are massive businesses run by 
a global criminal organization and they need muscle and transportation. They need the actual logistics to move all of these people and these illicit goods. And they need private armies for that. And that's what gangs are. That's what terrorist organizations are or the organizations that are called terrorist organizations by our government. These are all organizations that work in league with these same intel organizations that run the global crime network. And so that is what we see in these uh, gangs. We, We are convinced to imagine that these gangs are simply uh, organically grown from impoverished communities among marginalized groups. They have no way to get out of poverty, so they start selling drugs. Now, that is the the innocent and charitable explanation of what is actually happening. Um, Also worth noting, you know, I don't know if people are familiar with the Netflix series uh, Ozark, but one of the major plot lines of the final season of that show was that uh, big pharma organizations needed their own poppy crops to be able to make opiates. And these were being grown in the Ozarks and sold to big pharma. Now, let's assume that they still need the inputs, but they don't have a fictional farm in uh, the Ozarks. Where are they going to get all uh, that poppy farming done? Oh, Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> who's going to uh, guard it, though, Chris? Don't they need yeah. some sort of uh, enforcement arm over there to guard that stuff? Yes, they do. Yes. Terrorist organizations, <laughs> most of all. But then if that breaks down in any way or if it is challenged by people who actually live there and don't want the uh, global pharma poppy trade in their neighborhood, well, then you need to bring the uh, the global police force in to restore order in the global police force, of course, is the American military. But wouldn't you need some sort of story to get that global police force over uh, there? How yes, would you, yes, yes. How would you get yes. them over there? Well, you need Congress for that, wouldn't you? Well, <laughs> potentially, potentially you would need Congress, or you can just uh, blow something up in America, which gives them the uh, the impetus for and the justification for being there for the next 20 years. Yeah. And you can also um, start all sorts of uh, legislation like the Patriot Act in the pro- in the process. You can um, prop up the uh, Department of Homeland Security that can eventually take over our election infrastructure and make it impossible to replace these leaders. You can do all of this at the same time as long as you have the proper things in place between corporations, communications, global criminal networks, intelligence agencies, uh, foot soldiers on the ground. Sometimes it's MS-13. Sometimes it's BLM Antifa, you know, different tools for different purposes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously we're being tongue in cheek here, but it really is, you know, you, you have to laugh about it or else you'll just drive your head through a wall. Like it's, it's, You know, I think what's kind of amazing is that this stuff seems so complicated when you're first diving into it, like the war in Afghanistan that obviously is analog to this. But the funny thing is this, I wouldn't consider what we just did here like a a random aside, right? We're talking about a a movie about MS-13 and Central American crime and the southern U.S. border. And yet the war in Afghanistan and the Patriot Act and ISIS is 
identical. It, it is the same framework, the exact same framework, just writ larger. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a macro version of this micro, but it's the same thing. And I had said before the show to Chris, you know, that I'm a broken record with the Hegelian dialectic, but the reason that I bring it up so much is because once people, once people start to be able to think in that synthesis, antithesis, and uh, you know, solution, problem, reaction, solution sort of framework, it's easy to then map out what they're doing. You know, the, co yeah. the complexity comes in in what you just described. The complexity is the mechanisms behind the CIA and the intel agencies and funding and all these backroom deals and governmental uh, governmental deals that are that are happening behind closed doors. Sometimes they're right in plain sight. It's not always pallets of cash, you know, flying into Iran. A lot of the times it's a little that that almost strikes me as them getting a little cocky, which is why that stuff kind of blew up on them. Uh, no pun intended. But a lot of times it's more clandestine. You know, every now and again, some people start sniffing, a, sniffing around, say Benghazi, and then maybe something happens to those sort of people. Um, but it, it's really it's the same. It's the same playbook. It's just you can apply it to a 20 year long war in the Middle East or the complete destabilization of Central American uh, nations and South American nations that it, it creates problems that the deep state globalist system can react to all over the game board. And this movie is a great microcosm of how many different sets of problems they can then use to terrorize not only the nations depicted in this movie, but mm -hmm. also the U.S. itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And, you know, just to 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 kind of wrap this up and lead it back to the um, to, to MS-13 in the movie here, you know, They've got the poppy trade over there in Afghanistan. They've got uh, all the cocaine and whatnot down in Colombia. That needs to come up on the same path that they are traveling in this film. You know, they start out at the border between Guatemala and Mexico in Tapachula, and they just go all the way up through there. We're hearing now finally breaking into the mainstream news about the Darien Gap. I was hearing a, a story from someone I know the other day about the uh, the financing of essentially what our concentration camps set up um, along the route down in uh, Central America. They are putting up these quote unquote processing centers so that uh, the aspects of the asylum process and the uh, the facilitation of these people's entry into the United States is getting done in facilities in Central America and South America. And there are people in corporate America making a hell of a lot of money off that right now. Um, and a lot of that stuff's being funded too by these uh, international uh, NGOs. You know, Soros has had his grubby mitts down there forever as well, which makes a you lot wonder of it why. Is, I mean- Profit is yeah. just one part of it, of course. Yeah, well, that is definitely absolutely true. Um, the story I heard in particular, there was private individual financing going in to pay for this thing, which would then be um, replenished by the government as a rolling kind of process. Just tens of millions of dollars 
going to build processing centers in Central America to facilitate illegal immigration, uh, aka the global slave trade into this country. Um, yep. But let's get back to, uh, I want to just get the rest of this out. Yeah. Um, some of the original members of the of MS-13 adhered to Satanism. And while the majority of contemporary MS-13 members do not identify as Satanists, the Satanist influence is still seen in some of their symbolism. The gang, be the gang became a more traditional criminal organization under the auspices of Ernesto Deras. Deras was a former member of Salvadoran Special Forces trained in Panama by United States Green Berets. Former. Gaining, yeah, former. Exactly. On gaining leadership of an MS-13 clique in 1990, he used his military training to discipline the gang and improve its logistical operations. It was after this point that the gang began to grow in power. MS-13's rivalry with the 18th Street Gang also began in this period. MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang were initially friendly since they were some of the only gangs to allow Salvadorans to join. What exactly caused their alliance to fall apart is uncertain. Most versions point to a fight over a girl in 1989. Was that what, uh, was that Taylor Swift or what? <laughs> yeah, uh, right. In the, in the, they're like a child is born. Right. <laughs> um, an MS-13 gangster was killed, which led to a cycle of vengeance that has escalated into an intense and generalized animosity between the two gangs. And that is what we saw displayed in uh yeah. sin nombre where they have where they're where they're searching for casper at the train station um one last thing here and then i'll hand it over to you the war had lasted for more than 12 years and included the deliberate terrorizing and targeting of civilians by u.s trained government death squads including the targeting of prominent clergy from the catholic church the war saw the recruitment of child soldiers and other human rights violations, mostly by the military, which left the country susceptible to gang infiltration. So take a round of applause, State Department. I mean, how clean is that fight over a girl narrative, too? Uh, <laughs> randomly, yes. randomly, uh, the... Uh, when you, when you were reading the original section there where it's talking about it, let's just take it at face value, not the girl part, but the origins of MS-13 and say yes. that, I mean, that's probably true, that it that originally it was this semi-innocent gang of uh, heavy metal, whatever, Hispanic heavy metal, whatever, because it, it lines up that way where the key, the most successful sort of deployments by intel operations, CIA, etc. I know that this guy mentioned here, Deras, is a Green Beret, but it's all the same shit, right? They use operators. Everybody in the CIA, a lot of the people in the CIA that are operators are former special forces. It's how they get their special forces training. Then they go into the intel agencies. And a lot of these guys that are, you know, if you watch one of those Netflix shows, they're just going to hint at it a bunch of times. But most of the people who are even South American themselves and who are running these gangs have that intel agency training. They've got contacts within the agencies and uh, and within Green Berets and all that, right? Uh, but it made me think of even in the Boston area, I'd mentioned on a, a defected episode like a year ago, there was a gang that a friend of mine, um, it created a, a huge, like really bad fight where there was um, like tons of cops there and everything. We're at a, a heavy metal concert and 
there was a group called FSU, which stand for uh, F shit up. And it just made me think of that, where that was a real group that apparently their origins were supposed to be these straight edge heavy metal fans in the Northeast. And they would go to these concerts and supposedly they would be these good guys and they were sort of like white knights. Um, and then they were infiltrated by bad actors and these bad actors, and I'm not even saying intel agencies, I'm just saying like shitheads basically got in there and anywhere they would go, they would just start fights with people, hospitalize people, whatever. But they always had a story about why they had done what they'd done. Like they had a story that they were the heroes and that this guy was was uh, picking on this girl or they were going after only people who broke some sort of code that they had. But, you know, it's just making me think that if it was advantageous for them, the CIA, that's the perfect setup for something like the CIA. They just get people into an existing group like that because then it, it's real. It's not organized. It's really easy to infiltrate. And if you've got intel agency training and all of the backing that goes along with that, then yeah, it's not this, you know, the story is that this guy Deras just saw an opportunity here to, uh, to turn this gang into his own personal army. But everyone in this community understands that Deras had backing to do what he did. And once you sort of just click that into place and accept it, you see why they use pre-existing structures because it gives them plausible deniability even within the structure of their own gang. And that's something that's kind of obvious in this movie is that, uh, I, you know, at the very beginning, even in one of the clips you played, when they first introduced the leader of that little silo of MS-13 with all the tattoos on his face, they say the one who speaks with the second voice, you know, so even within the gang, they've got this kind of structure where you're not really supposed to question him. Maybe he doesn't talk to the CIA, but he talks to somebody in a different city and that person talks to somebody somewhere mm. along the chain. You really only need one node or a couple of nodes that have direct knowledge of the yep. larger structure of what's going on in these organizations in order to perpetuate the sort of... Um, controlled chaos that these intel agencies want to see and you know that that is such a great observation and that is uh also the case with something like election fraud you right. can take out the violence and uh the sex and the drugs and the weapons and the rest of it and what you've got is uh these tiny little um individual decentralized criminal organizations that are all answering to someone who is aware of the of the subversion that he or she is uh, requesting and directing, and the people actually carrying it out in that case they don't know what's in, going on. in the in the yeah. gang, it's obvious they know what's going on, but they're not they're not clued into the fact that someone is directing them, and that it's not uh, the organic thing at these bottom levels. They really don't know what it is they're doing but they're part of a criminal enterprise that's being run for uh, motivations entirely different than what they think that they are doing and the interests they think they're serving. Um, let's take a second and, uh, and do a couple ads here. Am I forgetting? No, I'm not forgetting. I would never forget. I might forget, but I'm not forgetting. Excellent. <laughs> Guys, life is unpredictable. If we've learned anything these last four years, it's that. 
And while we can't possibly predict everything that might be thrown at us, we can prepare for many things. So we are introducing two emergency kits from the wellness company, the first aid emergency kit for everything from sports activities to camping trips, compact and convenient. This kit contains critical prescription medications and supplies that everyone should have on hand. The travel emergency kit is specially designed for life on the go, compact, lightweight, and loaded with essentials for any adventure, whether it's a road trip, a hike, or just the unpredictability of daily life, you'll be ready. Next level readiness is at your fingertips with emergency kits from the wellness company. Stay one step ahead to have peace of mind for the unpredictable. Visit badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC and use promo code BADLANDS for an exclusive 10% discount. That's badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC, promo code BADLANDS. And then a, a, a word from our friends at... We all love our friends, but that doesn't mean that getting them canceled from time to time can't be extremely satisfying. Cancel Club. It's a party game where you try to get your friends canceled, where no one is safe and... Everyone's bound to be a little triggered. Battle it out for social credit points as fast as you can by gaslighting your friends, looting and rioting, or being an all-powerful little social justice warrior. Uh, unless your friends call conspiracy theory or defame you, you old racist bigot. A parody on all things cancel culture. Join the cancel club today. Don't be a Karen. Or order your game now. It's the dominant way to virtue signal. I will see you at the adults table. <laughs> you canceled. Yep. Yep. That felt pretty nice. Party in my place. Hmm? <laughs> I like it. The adults table. Who, who calls it that? This guy. Um, Okay, so let's get back into some MS-13 stuff because this was a major priority for Donald Trump and the Department of Justice uh, during his term. And gangs are going to be a big part of his agenda for his second publicly recognized term, which will be his you know third electoral victory beginning uh, less than a year <laughs> from now. So that's really great. Um, mass deportation effort is what we are told to expect. Um, the Eisenhower model. Yes. Ga gangs rounded up the, uh, the Bukele model perhaps down in El, El Salvador. I mean, he doesn't have the MS 13 problem anymore. That has been taken care of. I'm actually going to find some pictures of that. Um, I know that you are a Bukele observer at minimum because yep. of Bitcoin stuff and his role in that. Why don't you go right. ahead? And uh, yeah, and, I, and I, I know very little about the history there, um, but I'm fascinated by it. And, you know, the, the Bitcoin boys, I'm a, I always talk about the signal, you know, signal and the noise. And I do find it interesting. I was thinking about that at the start of this episode, actually, is that it, it's kind of interesting that ground zero for a lot of this destabilization, weaponized, engineered destabilization in Central America what uh, uh started in el salvador and it's kind of interesting that they're sort of the keystone the signal 
of what many people believe is a a peaceful revolution in terms of uh, against the central banking apparatus, which if you were a wacky, totally wacky conspiracy theorist, you might even draw parallels between the structure and engineering of intel agency-based terrorist organizations and cartels with the central banking apparatus. In fact, some people even go so far as to call them banking cartels. Uh, and it is interesting that even even if you get away from the Bitcoin of it all with Bukele, which for anybody who doesn't know, the president of El Salvador is the first president in the world to officially recognize uh, Bitcoin as legal tender, legal currency. So El Salvador is uh, first first across the finish line when it comes to that. And it's sort of interesting when you think of uh, of how he, you know, that that's the major move he made after taking power, but that what you just put up on the screen there is uh, is sort of how he um, how the ground was fertile enough for him to seemingly take power. So, you know, if one were given to more positive readings of conspiracy theories, which I definitely am, you'd think that maybe this guy had some backing down there to do what he did. One would think that. And uh, that is a mystery that probably must be solved. And it's one of those ones that we have to hope we are right about and not wrong yeah. about because <laughs> right. being wrong about it would have very, uh, I mean, being wrong wouldn't have the dire consequences, but being wrong about it would mean that we are in a considerably worse situation than yes. we would otherwise think. Mm -hmm. um, so it's funny because the media, despite Trump going after these gangs, the media was not uh, huge supporters of his effort. And you would have to wonder why if you didn't already know all the stuff that we were talking about. It is very strange that the media will at some point come to the rescue of these groups and defend them. It's like they don't have any real principles or something. And uh, of course, that's exactly. The well, problem. they might have. Uh, I mean, you could go so far as to assert the opposite, that they've got principles that are uh, very much aware of of the importance of organizations like this to the apparatus behind them. Um, you know, what's actually interesting before you get into this, just a small note on the media is that talk about compartmentalization when it comes to gangs, compartmentalization in the military. And there's absolutely compartmentalization in the media. You know, it's like. These people can be useful idiots, the communists that are writing the stories. But very often, I would say more often than not, the people writing the stories are not as read in as we sometimes think they are. All you need is an editor and you need all they need to know with the MS-13 example you bring up is that these are uh, these are this is a protected class. They know that within the Twitterati and within their media sphere, the party of false decorum, you know, another version of that that you bring up in Hollywood is definitely applies to the media. They know that that's just not something that you go after. And that if Trump is going after them, you go after him. It's pure inversion. They don't all have to know exactly how the bread is buttered in order to write these stories. Well, yeah. And the important thing, you know, from the perspective of continuing to be taken seriously, the important thing is that they are talking about the problems. It's not that they're going after the problems, getting to the bottom of the problems, uh, informing people about the problems so that people can get involved in helping to stop the problems. 
Their only responsibility, as they seem to see it, is to talk about the problems and to frame the problems in a way that continues pushing the same agenda forward. So the gang is not a problem because of illegal immigration. The gang is not a problem because of the uh, the various parts of the drug trade that they have no interest in stopping. The gang is a problem because neighborhoods are impoverished and kids aren't getting the education. And if we want to stop these gangs and the violence and the drugs, then what we need to do is spend a whole lot more money and flood these communities with money so that we can pay off the teachers unions to subject their teachers to more violent classrooms and overcrowded classrooms and all that. We, what we need to do is get more money to fund the programs that the regime already wants to push into these communities. You don't stop the illegal immigration. You don't stop the drugs. You don't actually stop the violence. You don't clamp down with the police. In fact, you defund the police. And what you do is just push more money into other things because we're addressing root causes. And the root cause is that there's not full communism yet. That's funny. That's the same solution to um, always to Ukraine. We just have yes. to... To stop the Russian space nukes, we just have to uh, give a bunch of money to Nazis in Ukraine. Yep. So it turns out that we can just give money to Nazis everywhere and all our problems will be solved. Um, I, I want to make it aside too on, um, I, I think it's a movie you should watch. I'll pick it at some point. I'm not going to follow it up on this movie because it's similar. But a movie that I was struck by, uh, I didn't think of it until we were on the show, but uh, that I want to revisit wondering if it's as based as I remember it being, even though I was a liberal when I watched it. Have you ever seen a movie called uh, Tropa de Elite or Elite Squad? It's a Brazilian movie. No, I don't think I have. I think that you'll like it and we should do it. It, it, it might be the based version of Scene Nombre. Uh, the sequel in particular, the first one kind of sucks. The sequel is like a completely different movie. It's called The Enemy okay. Within. And basically, you know, when you're talking about funding and you're talking about these gangs and basically how our media apparatus frames this problem, the migrant problem, uh, this Brazilian movie that came out in 2010 basically takes a hatchet to that media narrative and is all about the fire with fire approach that um, at the time, a lot of Western critics and communist critics hated it because they thought it was uh, basically Bolsonaro-esque um, patriotism, flag waving, you know, fight the crimes, uh, sorry, fight the crimes, fight the gangs. But what I found particularly uh, shocking about it is it takes a very close look at corruption within the Brazilian uh, government and legislation that have allowed these gangs to be, be perpetuated, right? Whereas C. Nombre doesn't quite take that same view of things. It, C. Nombre, you know, is it, when we look at the New York Times, See, Nombre is exactly the sort of movie that they would have their constituents or their donors watch yeah, in yeah. order to help them forward the narratives that they're writing. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, it was um, developed hand in hand with the Sundance Institute. And really? so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Perfect. And, you know, I mean, gosh, I've been to the Sundance Festival somewhere between five and ten times. Um, very familiar with that whole thing. And now looking back, it seems rather obvious what it's intended to do. I mean, you make a film like this and again, 
same effect we were just talking about. All you need is people who are um, much higher up in the Hollywood uh, structure to want these films to be presented in a sort of, in a certain sort of way. And then it's not hard to uh, go down a few levels to the writer and director and the people making the film and just provide the certain, you know, kind of guidance that'll just nudge them one way or another, because right. at those lower levels, um, especially in the indie film world where you're not talking about um, movies with big production budgets at the beginning, many times it's like first time filmmakers or people early in their career. And Fukunaga was at this point. Yeah. Um it's a lot easier to, to nudge those people in a direction because they want to work. They want to make something and making a few sacrifices here and there about what they're able to depict about a gang or a cartel or whatever is it's kind of worth making those small sacrifices to get the whole movie across. And ultimately either your, your representatives or you yourself will convince, will get convinced that it's better this way. You know what? We didn't actually need that stuff. That stuff is right. just going to distract people. We have like a real sleek kind of story here that we have going. We don't want to get into that other stuff. This is just a real uh, crisp tale about this adventure that these two people go on, right? They'll sell it to you that way. And you're like, the human all right, story. I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, okay. It's a sleeker. It's a slicker story. The presentation is right this way. It's going to get more eyes on it. This is This is the way to do it, you know? That's yeah, a, that's it's, how it's it sort works. of a, it's the face that they, they want to put a face yeah. on a story. Um, and that's, and, and again, in the party of false decorum, as you frame it, you know, you don't need, you don't need everybody involved in that process. You don't even need the producers to be aware of the larger goals, the larger sort of societal and cultural goals being forwarded by a machine like this. When you are one of these producers, even you would know what kind of movies play best at Sundance mm -hmm. and you know who's in attendance at Sundance. It's money, money, money. You know what the awards mean. You know, all these studios, they've got like a ratio, which you, you know better than I do. They've got basically, here's our blockbusters in our catalog this year. Now these are the awards films and we have to have this percentage of prestige chances mm -hmm. and this percentage of actually making money chances. We have to be friendly with the establishment media so that we're pushing good, uh, good regime friendly narratives. Um, and again, it's that compartmentalization sort of structure. Uh, I derailed you from your New York Times thing. So go back to that. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, I do think it's interesting, though. You know, you mentioned a bunch of subjects there. It is incredible how much the media chooses to avoid with right. some of these subjects. Right. It just they they want to touch on uh, they want to touch on certain aspects that help them push their agenda forward so that no one can say they don't care. Why don't you care about gang violence? And they'll right. say, what do you mean? We've covered it here, here and here and here and here. If if we were in a normal society that actually functioned and people had uh, decent priorities, we would be hearing about gang violence and why our government, who's in place and empowered to stop this sort of thing, doesn't do it. How is that even possible? How do we just accept 
as the state of being that we have roving armed criminal gangs in all of our major metropolitan areas bringing in uh, weapons and uh, drugs and violence into already impoverished communities, increasing the crime while facilitating illegal immigration and all other manner of of criminal uh, criminal activity within cities. Why does yeah, anyone what, what, stand for this? And it's because and, the know, media what, doesn't keep calling attention to it and right. portraying it as the biggest problem. We're hearing about like nuclear weapons tests from Kim Jong-un and nothing about gangs, nothing about fentanyl, nothing about uh, the fact that women and children are being trafficked across our border for sex. No one cares. That's not, that's you know, not even, a even, problem. Even the names they give to things, you know, it's the it's the crisis of the month, crisis of the year, not even in the media cycle. But, you know, there's there's an acknowledgement. One, once it becomes impossible to ignore, they'll acknowledge something like the opioid crisis. We've we've all heard that term in recent years. And the media now will acknowledge the opioid crisis. So they acknowledge like the end result of all of the mechanisms in the system that spits out this end result. But they don't want to talk about the whole pipeline that leads to that end result. They'll just acknowledge, hey, like you said about gang violence, they'll acknowledge that gang violence is a thing. Look, we're writing about it. There's gang violence everywhere. And the solution to it is to send money to El Salvador to open our borders or something like that. Um, and they'll say, you know, yeah, we're acknowledging that there's an opioid crisis now. Um, and our solution to it and how we're going to talk about it is we're going to make a bunch of sexy little Netflix docudramas about how Big Pharma are the ones who caused it because it's it's safe to go after Big Pharma, mm -hmm. which what they really are doing there is they're conflating Big Pharma with capitalism. They're saying the problem, the reason mm. that there's an opioid crisis is capitalism. It's not that we have through communism and subversion created a pipeline of not just slave trafficking, but drug trafficking through our southern border that spawned this opioid crisis that yes, then pharmaceutical companies benefit on by treating the problem, right? So it's just Hegelian it's Hegelian in every direction you go in. And then in terms of the the human kind of face that they like putting to things, even in this movie, um, I think some of the best sort of narratives, the, I shouldn't say best narratives, the most effective narratives that the regime puts forward are ones where the micro that they are advancing is true, while the larger macro is a complete fabrication. And I was I had written that down while watching this specifically with the character. I think he's named Smiley. They call him Smiley, the little kid. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so the little kid obviously is supposed to be this kind of origin story of how does somebody become an MS-13 member? And there's a it's a world without fathers, which they're trying to do in the United States as well. And this is one of them. And he's looking for father figures. There's a impactful little scene where he's the other little six-year-olds are looking up to him as like a nine-year-old because he's in with the dads of the neighborhood. Those are his dads, basically, and they're all going to protect him. So they're offering him a family. And it makes sense from that angle. And in a micro sense, I am, I'm certain that most of the people who end up in MS-13 probably have very similar stories to this kid. It probably is something where they're in this favela or whatever, 
They've got no father figure around. They're in danger by other gangs. And if they don't have a family, they need one. So they're kind of raised in this environment where these are the guys that will protect you if you're part of the neighborhood. It goes back to the Irish, you know, the Irish mob. They've been doing it since the yeah. 70s. The uh, the Italian mafia, same thing in the U.S. It's just a a more extreme version of it down there. Uh, but what they what that what that true micro obscures and what this movie doesn't want to take a lens to or a magnifying glass to is the system that has put that in place. Is that 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 to create those little smileys? They they don't want to talk about the mechanisms and the intention of the agencies behind that and the government behind that. They just want to say, look, we can't do anything about it. There's these little kids that are going to keep joining MS-13 and uh, we better we better treat that problem by, you know, funding communism and funding these NGOs. You know, and they it, it's it's funny. They talk about child soldiers. And of course, this is something that we've heard uh all around the world, but, and, and we can see how something like that might happen naturally, of course, but it's always highlighted by the same people for the same reasons. And then you find out that those same people were also in those countries creating the child soldiers. And it's like, wait a second here. Yeah. You keep telling me about this problem, but it doesn't seem like you really want to solve it. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, this would have been actually it was 2012 because the uh, the 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 campaign. This was like one of the first social media campaigns, uh, social media activism campaigns. Do you remember Coney 2012? No. So there was uh, this this African warlord, I think in the Congo or something, named uh, Joseph Coney, and there was an organization down in Southern California in San Diego called Invisible Children. And they started this online social media campaign to uh, to take down Joseph Coney in 2012 because this African warlord had child soldiers and it had to be stopped. And so the way to stop it was to send like 40 bucks and get this lunchbox and t-shirt from Invisible Children. And they they gained so much traction with this Coney 2012 campaign that they eventually then went and testified in a congressional hearing encouraging U.S. military action in this uh, in this like war-torn African Republic. They also wanted to go like strip resources, of course. So they were basically ginning up um, American social justice attention and support to justify military action in this country in Africa that they wanted to subjugate. And all of these kids, these, it, they're not, you know, kids, young twenties, um, I think was kind of the age group of the invisible children's organization, but they were getting like support from, uh, like kind of young hipster social justice, very online America, throughout the first half of that year. And then the whole thing blew up because the director of the organization like was filmed running around naked around his little San Diego suburb, 
like jerking off and trick tripping out on drugs. It was the, it was the craziest story, man. <laughs> I never. It's funny because I feel like I've heard the term "invisible children," but maybe I'm thinking of something yeah, else. But no, I didn't not. know that. Uh, you know, if you, it's I might have said this on a. I probably said this in a different context on one of our episodes, but. You know, what some of this stuff makes me think of, even when I was reading Joe Lang's uh, series on the School of Americas, and then you just bring up Africa. Um, you know, back in the day, I was on the Chans, and that's where I had seen the Q drops, uh, which thank God for that stuff. But, you know, I was I was mostly there for the memes, but uh, you'd see some horrible shit. You know, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of Anons who were, were on 4chan and everything at the time know that you'd see stuff like this. And a lot of this stuff was coming out of um, still to this day, if you, if you do go looking for anything, it's coming out of the Congo, it's coming out of Africa, where mm. you see, you know, there'll, there'll be videos that people bomb into threads that are supposed to be about memes. And it'll just be, you know, people doing the most horrific stuff to each other, like burning people alive and stuff that, like, if you'd never seen that before growing up in an American suburb, and then you see it online, you're like, holy crap, like what, like live leak and people that monetize shit like that. I hate stuff like that. Obviously, it's super blackpilling and depressing. But what's what's a weird white pill to me, post Infowar era, Awakening era, is that I had doomed out so hard when I had seen stuff like that when I was younger, because I just couldn't understand that being a natural, a supposed natural state of human beings. It was almost like the implication, and I think a lot of that is psyops, I think a lot of what is on message boards like that stuff is injected there by the CIA and everything, I don't think that's a particularly hot take, in order to demoralize Anons who were otherwise talking about really interesting conspiracy theories and digging into things, and then somebody would just bomb a bunch of videos of people getting burned alive, like in a thread. And it's like, that's probably intel agencies that are trying to make you think this isn't worth saving. Humanity is doomed. They'd even say stuff like that. And oh, yeah. now, you know, it's still horrible. That stuff really happened, you know, assuming some of those videos are real. But when you start to understand the mechanisms in place, I don't find it to be a black pill to understand that. I actually find it to be a white pill because that, that nugget of truth in there is that this is not a natural state of being. If you have a, a, a poor nation like the Congo, it is not the natural state of being for people to put tires around each other and pour gasoline on them and light them on fire. It's These things are usually engineered by outside forces for the benefit of, in the case of a lot of these African nations, if you want to go down some rabbit holes, you start looking into organ harvesting and how systematized that stuff is. Well, who's buying that stuff? Who are the buyers? It's not these local warlords that are buying these organs that are being harvested. It's somebody else above them. And just like who's buying the drugs, it's not Timmy down the street who's buying some weed from the cartels. It's a massive industry in the U.S. that is the buyer, the net buyer of this stuff. So what our media and entertainment industry is good at focusing on is the end of that funnel and the buyer and they're not usually focused on the start of that funnel, which is the seeding and the destabilization efforts that create this stuff. And they can doom people out because they make you think like, man, what is it about South America? Is it if, if the U.S. all of a sudden had a financial collapse, will people be burning each other in the streets? And I don't think that's the case. I think it's that stuff usually is um, that stuff usually is seeded. There's usually somebody that is has a vested interest 
in uh, creating those kinds of uh, circumstances. Well, that was, uh, that was <laughs> very, very, very visual. Vivid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's supposed let's... to be a white pill, but it just happened to include people getting burned alive. Well, no, I mean, it also makes sense because, you know, you're talking about uh, them using that as an attack point online on message boards or in chat groups. And I've certainly gotten some of that before. Uh, some lunatic like posting these weird like pit bull videos. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because you can recognize them pretty immediately in what they're doing. And they will always pretend to be the toughest guys ever. Yeah. And if you just proceed to point out how gay and retarded they are, they usually get really, really angry and then leave. And, yeah. and that's a, a great time as far as I'm concerned. Um, everybody, if you can, please go ahead and uh, hit that like button. Uh, also, a word from uh, our overlord, John Harold. <laughs> Guys, um, badlandsmedia.tv uh, is your place to head if you want to find new ways to support Badlands. Uh, if you're not able to rumble rant on here and you want to donate, that's awesome. Go to badlandsmedia.tv slash boost. We also have the Badlands shop where you can shop America first companies. Uh, with every purchase, you'll not only be supporting us at Badlands, you'll also be supporting those uh, legitimate America first businesses who approach us and want to host their products on the Badlands website. You can also become a Badlander and uh, get shareable content, uh, join the street team, whatever. And uh, yeah, definitely hit that thumbs up. Um, that helps us get on the leaderboards and get seen by all sorts of rumblers out there. Um, rumblers, I, th I feel like they should have some kind of name. Right? Oh, I've never I mean, heard somebody say that. It works. Yeah. Um, I love uh, that uh, That there's the, uh, the everything woke turns to shit video clip. <laughs> I Nobody who's listening to this is going to understand that. But uh, I didn't download it before. I'm just seeing it right now. And I'm very saddened by the fact that I don't have that one loaded up. But you know what I do have loaded up? Always this one. We do a little trolling. It's called We Do a Little Trolling. It is called that, Mr. Trump. Perfect. <laughs> it is fantastic. Um, okay, so we were talking about MS-13 and uh, Trump going after them. This is from uh, January 31st, 2018. So two years into the first term, New York Times, Trump took aim at MS-13 in speech. Why? <laughs> In his State of the Union on Tuesday night, Donald Trump said that illegal immigrants, quote, have caused the loss of many innocent lives, end quote, and paid special attention to the gang known as MS-13. Many of its members, he said, quote, took advantage of glaring loopholes in our laws to enter the country as un unaccompanied alien minors and then ended up murdering American citizens. Now, if you are a Barack Obama supporter, that might immediately trigger you because we know, 
if you are an Obama supporter and Bernie Bright and I, uh, unfortunately voted for, uh, Barack Hussein Obama twice, but that's okay. You guys voted Original for uh, George, George <laughs> yes, w. Exactly. Bush and John McCain, um, yeah. and Mitt Romney. Come on. Uh, yeah. I still feel better about our choice than than those ones. <laughs> I don't feel good about any of my choices back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but that is particularly funny because one of Barack Obama's biggest priorities was uh, people who were brought into the country as minors. Barack Obama wanted to give them money and a college fund. Donald sure Trump is pointing too. out I thought that you were going they were somewhere else with that. <laughs> oh well, you 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 can. Um, I, I don't want to get into, no, no, ye, we don't. The, yeah. You might be saying gross stuff. I mean, yeah. it's real, but it's gross. Let's leave that alone yeah. for now. This is bad enough. Um, Donald Trump was basically taking Barack Obama's unaccompanied minors and saying, Hey, uh, the, uh, the guy who created ISIS is, uh, forming MS 13 and, oh yeah, that's the gang that was blamed for the uh, assassination of Seth Rich. And also, when you have this massive overriding presence of gang violence in communities all across the country, then you can actually execute things like political hits without anyone ever blinking an eye. Oh, it was just random street violence. You know how they have that gang problem there. People Boss don't think Robert. about that. But I mean, it's no it's no different than it was with the Italian mafia. I mean, they they portrayed this stuff in Godfather and it's no different than what's happening to Seth Rich. What were you going to yeah. say? Go ahead. No, I mean, the the botched robbery narrative. I mean, yes. I, I, yeah. I remember uh, you know, this mileage may vary in terms of how valuable you find the Joe Rogan experience or uh, any of these intellectual dark web type of things. But mm -hmm. I will say there was a, a, a seismic clip that was going around back in 2016 or 17 and it was an appearance on the joe rogan experience by jimmy Dore, uh famous for being the the cool liberal like the one who says that liberals are bad um but you know for whatever else i think about these guys he uh he had a moment on that podcast where he basically went on uh, an unhinged rant about ms13 killing seth rich and how it was obviously the Clinton campaign and the DNC and whatever. Um, and that shit went pretty viral. And, you know, I, I'm glad you came back to Trump because even, even the little trolling clip there fits perfectly into this. Uh, the MS-13 stuff, in hindsight especially, it's such a good example to me of Trump's narrative style where he, where he would spotlight like moab nuclear narrative spotlight a specific thing like a concept and at the time it's ms-13 and he's talking about them he was saying they're animals that's where the animals the yeah. infamous viral animals rant came from and how the media weaponized it right and at the time it used to be so frustrating for us to see them spinning trump's words and being like that's not what he said that's not the context of what he said and with the benefit of hindsight you know, a lot of us believe he was absolutely doing that on purpose and he knew full well what the media was going to do because on a long timeline, he wanted them trapped. I sometimes refer to it in, as a, in the sports world as a, the take bunker. Like if you sometimes you get caught in a take, you've been advancing a bad argument for so long that you barricade yourself into the take bunker. And 
I feel like a lot of what Trump was doing with a lot of these early narratives, the border wall was his first really viral narrative. Oh, there we go. And uh, MS-13 was a really viral narrative. And he specifically made these extremely dramatic and almost cartoonish narratives, I think, partly to get the media trapped in their takes that would age like curdled milk. You know, and I, I still don't think that we've seen the end game of these things. I think that, you know, just like the American people right now, a lot of them are remembering who was the one who was talking about building the wall mm -hmm. and how maybe we might need it. I'm sure down the line, MS-13 is going to come back into the narrative in a very big way and with very different context for a lot of normies. And they're going to be like, huh, wasn't there a guy who was saying that these were animals who needed to be, he said they needed to be put down like dogs. They needed mm -hmm. to be treated like dogs. And uh, that's true. <laughs> that yeah, is and they went, they went absolutely nuts and they called him a Nazi and they did mm -hmm. all those things that they do because... That is what they are always going to do. Um, let's pull this back up and uh, just finish this out. Um, it really is incredible to me. So Trump says the loophole, uh, or the New York Times says, sorry, the loophole in Mr. Trump's speech has been immigration authorities approach to children who arrive at the border, unaccompanied alien children in government parlance, who are eligible for special protections. Some children who are fleeing violence in their home countries can apply for asylum. Others, after a lengthy court process, would be eligible for legal residence if they prove they were abused, neglected, or abandoned by a parent in their home country. Children have surged across the border in recent years, many fleeing violence and destitution in Central America. They often end up living with family members or court-appointed guardians while their cases are adjudicated. And that is putting the nicest possible spin on that situation. Because of course, this is also, you know, the, the animals comment, you're right on that. Um, this is also the time where, uh, you know, AOC was going down and they were talking about kids in cages, these mm -hmm. separations. We know for a fact that they were getting uh, swabbed for DNA. The DNA was being tested. They were trying to figure out whether or not those children and the people saying, claiming that they were family members actually were family members, or if these children were just being uh, transported across the border, because that is horrifying. And, you know, you're talking about, uh, have we seen the end game of this? We're seeing some of it right now because they're still pressing forward for this Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan funding. And they had it initially linked to the border issues. And I think that they may believe that they can make things so bad at the border and so bad with Russia, Ukraine, that they can get all of this back together and get it passed through again. We're still being told we need border help. Everybody is now claiming that immigration is the biggest problem in the world, despite ignoring it for three years. So I, th I think we're seeing the culmination of a lot of these narratives right now. Yeah, and if you do, I mean, it's sometimes it can feel like wishful thinking and we don't want to ever assume anything. But uh, the reason I think, you know, people like us are, are very geared to looking at the media, the media landscape through the context of stories and narrative structure is because that can be, you know, because it works. There's a reason the media does it. There's, there's a reason they put 
There's a reason that they put a face on a story, right? There's a reason that Sin Namre has human faces in it, and it's it's through the lens of Smiley, the child soldier, and Casper, the friendly MS-13 member, and you know Saya, the uh, the the victim who's just looking to start a new life, and she's wandering around a parking lot in the U.S. Um, until like you know Auntie New Jersey comes to rescue her. It's <clears throat> these things are all true they're, they're templates for things that really do happen while they obscure and don't talk about the root problem but one of the the white pill version of that to me is that i really believe that patriots understand patriots meaning trump and the advent of trumpism and all that stuff when we're revisiting a lot of his old narrative deployments they understand the importance of narrative structure too they understand the importance of putting a face on things i think donald trump himself is a pro the character of donald trump who the hell put that forth? Was it Trump's idea? I don't know. I mean, I don't assume that. So who, they, they put him forth with his bombastic narrative style because they knew that the America First movement needed a face and a character to sort of um, attach to, just like they knew that his opponents need a villain. They need a villainous face to attach to. And uh, when we look at MS-13 and the potential for these narratives to come back around in a good way and prompt what I refer to as narrative whiplash, isn't it convenient that one of the most sort of viral conspiracy theories of the last decade is Seth Rich, a name, a, myster a mysterious story, MS-13, Hillary Clinton, the DNC, Bernie Sanders, like... The orbit of that little set, Julian Assange, for God's sakes, is involved in the story. So, you know, if we do get any sort of disclosure in the future regarding that little microcosm, you can see how it can prompt the sort of positive whiplash that the enemy's been using forever, where they narrative seed uh, right en route to a false flag that then gets their actuals forwarded. I think patriots can reverse engineer that and be like, everyone's been talking about MS-13 for eight years now. We've been talking about the Seth Rich mystery and the DNC. And wouldn't it be something if we get uh, disclosure about something like that in the future? Because it recontextualizes for a good amount of a good number of Americans, you know, everything around that, everything orbiting that story. I was just thinking about in terms of the disclosure, what the timing would be like, because it would be really great to nail that at the juncture of uh, or at, at the convergence, I should say, of uh, an immigration story and a Hillary Clinton story and a Julian Assange story. That would be great, too. So it, it could be coming right up. Now. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> it could be. Um, I think it'll probably be a few reruns from now. But, yeah. uh, you know, thinking about that period between when they give Joe Biden, 100 million votes on November 5th. And uh, when that whole situation is finally resolved, however many months later it takes. <laughs> yep. During that period, if all the disclosure just starts raining down upon them while they're trying to like generate a Joe Biden-backed civil war, <laughs> that'll be yep. hilarious. Yeah, like uh, I, you know, that, that's the difference. A lot of us, a lot of us in the in the quote unquote truth community, we we know we might not know everything that happened with Seth Rich and everything orbiting him, but we certainly know what did not happen, and we certainly know what institutions were involved in that and what figures were involved in that, right? So when we talk about disclosure, it's obviously in the form of um, 
of official disclosure, the official codification of that stuff, the inarguable, sort of like we, many of us who had followed the Q drops were aware of Jeffrey Epstein. We were aware of the 2009 case with him. We were aware of Trump's relationship with him, adversarial relationship, and we were aware of the island and the allegations there. But it wasn't until the arrest and subsequent suicide that that narrative and that knowledge was codified in a hugely mimetic way. So I mm -hmm. think that that's kind of a template that, like you use the term reruns, those reruns, I feel like, uh, I think some people think you're being negative when you say reruns, but I, I think, you know, there's a, I mean, there's I'm a, bored of them. I'm bored of yeah. the reruns, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean I don't understand why they're being used. Right. They also can just happen naturally too. Right. Like many of these yeah. lessons you just learned by now. Yeah. They're massaging, they're massaging that stuff. And I don't think it's even always intentional. I think, like you said, these, these things come back in the cycle anyway. That's why they call it a cycle. Sometimes the enemy is the one who's forwarding reruns, obviously for their own purposes. But if you get these kinds of things like a Seth Rich disclosure codified in any sort of way, then uh, then in hindsight, it allows you to you might see it coming when you see some of these characters being reinjected into the narrative. You know, we've got Hillary Clinton back in the narrative in a prominent manner. We've got Julian Assange back in the narrative. We've got John Podesta back in the narrative who also orbits that whole situation. So it's uh, it's interesting. And that's how I think we could see some whiplash. And yeah, if if. If you want to use your version of, um, you know, Joe Biden getting 100 million votes or something like that, you need in order for those narratives to be the most effective on the largest number of Americans, you need damages. You need psychological damages to be yeah. incurred by people. It's and it would certainly be pretty damaging if Joe Biden is totally, definitely the president again, while all of the establishment is implicated in these decades old conspiracies that are now conspiracy fact it would be it, it'll be spectacular i mean i would have to talk myself out of believing that's what's going to happen <laughs> um i i want to say though so you you mentioned something interesting there you're talking about disclosure and we're talking about what it means um to have that final level of disclosure and and i think it's interesting because you know we talk a lot about how these are oftentimes things that we have known for many years, you know, the the example like last week was Taibbi and Schellenberger uh, revealing to the country uh, everything we knew about Russiagate in 2018 and acting like it was using the same sources um, brand new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, like they had just confirmed it. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Our betters. You've just confirmed the thing that everyone already knew, you yeah. know. The, the one part of what they're doing that actually matters and um, is very effective is that it is that moment where the mainstream has to incorporate what was formerly called a conspiracy theory. So right. that's the moment at which that claim goes from having been a conspiracy theory to now just being something that everybody knows. And the strategy then goes from trying to marginalize the viewpoint to then trying to just um, kind of hide it among context and say that, yes, fine, it's true that what they were saying back then was correct, but the fact that you haven't heard it between then and now means it doesn't matter anymore. There's nothing that can be done about it. And let's just revert 
to the status quo ante, which is that Donald Trump is your biggest threat. And so with that process, the uh, the the uh, full public knowledge is accepted, incorporated, and then just kind of uh, neutralized immediately. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, the, the maybe it's going to be Taibbi and Schellenberger who codify the Seth Rich truth, uh, which is very annoying. But um, they're also going to tell us the way they that uh, they're also going to be the guys that tell us that Joe Biden didn't receive 81 million real lawful American votes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the only the only way the only way forward in this madness is, uh, you know, I think we've we've advanced similar terminology about this. But, you know, you, it, it's up to you individuals, individual minds to front run these narratives and to front run where the rest of the collective mind is. You know, I might talk about the collective mind a lot and 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 try to suss out what I think is going on from an awakening perspective. Uh, but I really loved your post that you made last week about um, that, you know, not only is it not only is it incumbent on each of us to mm. not not stay behind, uh, which I totally agree with you. You know, we can understand maybe what what a macro strategy is that's being advanced here mm -hmm. while also not having to participate in that directly. And to yeah. your point, the post you made last week, um, part of what we're trying to do, you know, even when we challenge figures like Schellenberger and Taibbi and the manner in which they're going about the official codification of truth is by not letting them get away with that shit and calling that shit out and saying, no, no, no. It turns out that the truth always was the truth and the people that were saying the truth for years longer than you guys were codifying that truth were already effing right. And, uh, you know, you made the point, too, about by doing that, by engaging with the info war, by engaging with reality in as direct a path manner as we can, we are not only forwarding our own understanding of reality and therefore making the world better, I think, on a micro, but we are by proxy giving patriots, if they are advancing an awakening agenda, more of that public mandate to do so. And mm -hmm. that's, I think, it's it's sort of a, it's a rallying cry and it's a, it's a good sort of mission statement that can also help you sort of deal with the frustration of seeing how many people are behind us and realizing that that's okay. You don't have to go back for them. That's mm -hmm. maybe some people's style. By going forward, you are creating a framework or a gravitational pull, almost a psychological gravitational pull that will inevitably drag some of them forward just by following in your wake. Well, yeah, so and, that has, that that. and that has to happen because yep. somebody actually has to spot that path and create that path and show other people where the path is. And if nobody's moving forward, then that can't be done. So, right. so that's um, the first part of it, but it's also like, if we want a better world, if that is what we are actually trying to do, and we're not just trying to get Donald Trump back in there for four more years with a rhino house and a rhino Senate and rhinos throughout state governments all around the country, then a bigger change needs to be made. So we are not at a sufficient point on an informational timeline if we remain at the pace of the Schellenbergers and uh, the Taibis and even the Tucker Carlson's. And yeah. so we have to advance beyond that and ahead of that. And in the future, we want the informational timeline collectively to be ahead of that. So we can't stay back there with them. We also can't be here cheering them on when they are clearly keeping people back years back 
out of their own ignorance at best or out of just um, exploitation at worst. We don't want that. We want people who are ahead of the game. We want the collective mindset to be understanding information as close to real time on that informational timeline as possible. So it requires a change there in order to do that. And then the third part of that, as you correctly um, are, are remembering, is that if no one is, if, if everything is being run and the timing of those things are being controlled from the top and there is no one below that trying to push them and in, into speeding up that timeline, then how are they supposed to know that anyone is actually ready to right. take the reins from them? Because yeah. they can't just do this forever through um, this, this illusion that they create in the mainstream media, through media manipulation and us understanding the factual reality and then using that interplay to advance forward. That can't just go on forever unless right. all we're doing is replacing their liars with ours. So Absolutely. at some point, someone is going to have to be the, uh, the impetus and the motivation to push them along forward. Unless you just believe that there is some uh, end point of the process that we are in now. And then at that end point, all of a sudden we are into this magical new realm where everything just works. No, absolutely and not. Get and er, er, when I, people get disappointed when I say this because they want all of this to be over in nine months with a, an election win. The television tells them, congratulations, MAGA Donald Trump has right. won again. And we have a red wave everywhere. And now everything's perfect. Yeah, and they imagine, they imagine the liars, the lie tellers being replaced by the truth tellers. And there's going to be the era of the truth tellers that are telling the truths to you. And that may also be the case that could happen that we enter an era where people are telling us the truth in, uh, in, uh, in you know, that's what that's the media that's being disseminated widest in a free market of information. But it's the same thing that Chris is talking about in order to create a paradigm in which the truth is is the thing that is dominating the zeitgeist, it has to be from the ground up. There, there might be top-down forces that are helping to neuter the old systems of power, the gatekeepers, um, the Schellenbergers and Taibis of the world, you know, the literal keepers of the gate, uh, but then there has to be the rangers that are out there that are pushing the bounds. I mean, when you're teaching, you know, if, if you're teaching anything but music or fighting or whatever it is, and your student has mastered a jab and you just keep teaching them a jab for five years, you're, you're not being a good teacher, right? Yeah. But, the, but it's incumbent on the student to show you that they've developed a good jab and you've got to. And if one student has a fantastic jab and the other one doesn't, you move that one further along. You move the goalposts further along for that person. That's what we can, uh, that's what we can be a part of doing. So I don't see that as a black pill at all. I actually think, you know, I refer to it as the process paradigm in my writing. Uh, winning is a process, and it's a it's a process that we've got to radiate our own paradigms individually of knowledge, of in, information gathering, and of morality, and then that starts to expand around us. I talked to a friend of mine who's a business owner and whose uh, business occasionally intersects with the political world, and he is kind of more in the vein of an establishment Republican, but he's awake. He knows what's going on. It's just that he is, uh, you know, accustomed to that mindset. 
And he's like, well, what happens when Trump goes back in? Is he actually going to be able to get all this stuff done? That's going to require a lot of organization and planning. And I'm like, well, hey, buddy, check out the uh, check out Project 2025. He really already has this thing going. This thing yeah. is being built to run all of this efficiently. But the other part of Project 2025 is that they want people sending in their resumes and saying, I want to serve in XYZ capacity. I have these skills. Sign me up. And we're going to need we're going to need that if I'm in. Uh, if things are going to be fixed. I'm in. I accept I, your offer to join the next Trump administration. Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, I mean, you're welcome. Um, yeah, I would be in except you know, what is, what is my resume at this point? Yeah. I ran, I mean, I have the weirdest resume of all time. Anyway, you know what? why ahead. don't they make us an offer? We're front running. I don't want to be back. I don't totally. want to go back to the Trump administration. Like we're, we're, we're going ahead. Uh, I got a few rants here cool. before we get out of here. Yes. Um, and guys, ghost, please hit that thumbs up. Also, I have a storm up next. So stay tuned for that. Go ahead. Ghost Smith 801 sends 15 over says guys, just catching the show live. BB and CP. Are you guys going for the underworld look? CP dark background, BB looks more white with bright blue eyes. Uh, what you're seeing with me is winter in New England it has done this to me. <laughs> so uh, I don't plan to be this this white for the entire year. <laughs> Unintentional. Uh, Andy 5x5 said, Chris DM'd you on truth, the woke Trump clip, and Norm on Coney clip each 10 seconds. Is that Norm McDonald? Norm McDonald? Um, go ahead, keep going. Fantastic. I'm gonna get this. I love that clip with him and Sarah Silverman, where he's like, "Sounds like a sounds like a bunch of commie gobbledygook to me." When she's just <laughs> ranting about something. Uh, I love him, man. Yeah. Oh, and then Ghost Smith eight hundred one again says, "CPI agree. We shouldn't have to wait for normies to catch up." Nope, we don't have to. And then Jake Husden has become a monthly Badlands Media supporter, so we well, appreciate that's... that. Um, and Quite if you guys nice. send any boosts over, we will grab those on the next episode. Otherwise, let's see if we can let's yeah. see if we can do this here quick before we have to go. Uh, no, it's not going to work. Okay. Ah, Coney. Coney, Kobe. Yeah, it depends on which part of the dialect. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. Sure. They Coney, kill yes, with they kill with machetes. Mm -hmm. How do you like that? You wake oh. up in your hut, and there's Coney, and who's with him? His army of children. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. There's nothing funny Bunch about of that children macheting you. And then what's your recourse? You kill a child. And that doesn't look good either. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite you know. Norm McDonald clip is when he proposes 9-11 airlines. <laughs> makes the other, he makes the other hosts like die laughing while he just plays a straight man. He is hysterical. So all right, guys, thank you so much for watching. Wait a second, Burning Bright, you have to tell them your, your movie. I'm going to subject us to something okay. that I have a method to the madness. If you want to share my screen here. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> it was worth it just for that. So I'm. we are going to go deep into the mind of a fourth wave Hollywood feminist for next Tuesday night. Um, I've seen this movie. It oh, is wow. very well made. Mm. Um, it is full of fourth wave feminism that we can use as a, as, a, as a teaching opportunity. And one of the key arguments that I will advance, and this will help you get through this movie and maybe even enjoy it, 
is that I believe this movie was accidentally either based or so feminist that it it devolved into an Ouroboros and became based specifically through the character of Ken played by Ryan Gosling. So, okay, so for the audio people out there, the movie oh, he's yes. referring to is uh, last summer's smash hit, Barbie. We're watching Barbie. We're going to get the Kennergy going. All right. Well, guys, um, sorry to end on such a dark note. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it really is dystopian, the most yeah, bright yeah. dystopian. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be fun, I promise. Yeah, it'll be... Uh, <laughs> More more brutal even than seeing Nombre, but hey, what can you Have do? you seen it? No. <laughs> I'm just um, playing. I'm right. happy to do this to you then. All right. Well, hey, all is fair. Um, <laughs> all is fair in love and war and Badlands story hour. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, Eye of the Storm is getting started right now, so head on over there. And otherwise, we will see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up on this video. And a special thank you to all of our advertising partners. Please remember to shift your dollars to support those businesses that support Badlands Media.